John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion begins with the premise. In order to know God, we must know ourselves. In order to know ourselves, we must know God. When I first read that, it, it, it struck me. And I've been meditating on it for years. And it's interesting because I think he's on to something here. In order to know ourselves, we must know God. Because before we can know what it is to truly be human, we must know who God is. We must know what it, what it means to be made in his image. We must know what it means to be the image bearer of our creator. And to know God, we must know ourselves. Well, that's the one I always struggled with. But until I recognized that I was a sinner, until I recognized that I was an image bearer of God, but that image had been shattered by the curse, and that my own sin separated me from a perfect and holy God, I couldn't understand him and my need for him. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of myself are so intertwined. And we're going to get into some of that this morning. And some of the questions that we need to ask, the most fundamental questions that anyone one of us needs to ask is, who is God and who am I? And how do we reconcile those things? How do we understand ourselves in light of who God is? Because it must start with knowledge of God. And, and underneath that, we have to ask a question, how do I know what I know? How can I know anything at all? I'd love to give you guys a vocab word of the week. This one's weird, word is epistemology. It's the science of knowledge. How do we know what we know? Where do we get the basis for our knowledge? And it must start with an understanding of who God is and who we are. How do I know the things of God? How do I know the will of God? Paul tells us that we, our minds must be renewed because without the renewal of our minds, without faith in Christ, without the illumination of God, we still can't understand ourselves. We can't understand the world. There are things that are not discernible to the world that are discernible to the believer. And we're going to get into some of those things this morning. Jesus will also tell us that by being obedient, we can learn the will of God. We can learn the things of God. Those who do the things of God will know the things of God. And this is very cyclical. This is the life of the believer. And we're going to break down some of Jesus' teaching this morning and how that applies to us. And so you're going to put your thinking caps on here, all puns intended, and uh, for those of you who are not ready, there's more coffee in the back. Maybe you need a donut, sugar rush. But we're going to ask some questions here because Jesus forces them to ask difficult questions. One of the things that, that we're going to see is that you must have light to walk in the light clearly. And what is that light? And without this God-given vision, there is no light. And light is the knowledge of Christ. And this, this morning, our whole theme is going to be the knowledge of Christ. Where, what is Christ's knowledge and how, does our, how is our knowledge informed by his knowledge? And there's this picture too, this unspoken picture, because Jesus is speaking to people who don't know him, who don't know his father. But the unspoken truth is that the ones who do know him, there's an intimacy with God. There's an intimacy through Christ, as Jonathan spoke about, the union with Christ that allows us to see things clearly and allows us to see the things of God. Because you can know facts about Christ. You can know facts about the Bible, as the Jews did. There's a difference between that and knowing real knowledge. You know, I may know a lot of facts about Michael Jordan. I grew up idolizing him, but I don't know him. Never met him, probably never will. 
There's a difference between knowing facts about someone and actually knowing them intimately. And we're going to look at some of those things here because the Jews thought they knew biblical facts. They thought they knew the God of the Bible. But Jesus, as he always does, he presses where they put their, their comforts and their identity that are outside of God. I want to quote here from one of my uh, favorite pastors and Puritans in history. John Owen has a book called Communion with God that's just fantastic. Start with John Calvin, John Owen, we're reading from John. My uncle John actually sent this to me. So today's sermon is brought to you by the letter J for John. He says this. Listen to these words because this is beautiful. Christ so delights in his saints that he reveals his secrets to them. Christ reveals his mind to his saints and to them alone. He shares with them his mind, his loving counsels, his heartfelt thoughts, and all of his secret plans. He shares with them the ways of his grace, the workings of his spirit, the rule of his scepter, and the obedience of the gospel for our eternal good. We do not often enough reflect on what Christ shares with us as believers, as his saints. And so this morning, I hope there's a an invigorated passion within you to seek the knowledge of Christ and not the wisdom of men. So this passage this morning is going to contrast the knowledge of Christ with the knowledge of the Jewish crowds. They see him. He's right before him. They have evidence of him right in front of their very eyes, but they're blind, deaf, and dumb to the things of God. And Jesus is going to expose that within them. So let's open our Bibles to John chapter 7, starting in verse 14. There's a lot to learn this morning from what Jesus teaches them. So I'm going to read through all these verses, uh, but we're going to focus on the teachings of Jesus, and I'll just give you some background information where we need it. John 7, starting in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I make a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man with whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. 
I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. Then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And then the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks to teach the Jews or teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. Let's pray and you can pray for me to stay on focus and get this whole passage done in time. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you that you sent the word made flesh to declare your heavenly counsels to us. Thank you that by the blood of Christ and his ascending and ruling that we as saints can even scratch the surface of who you are. Lord, help us to marvel. Not that you're able to teach, that you teach us. Help us to marvel in the truths of your word. Help it to transform us, not just to be, not just to be hearers, but also doers. Help our hearts and our lives to be transformed by the gospel. Help us to seek the knowledge of Christ and not be persuaded by the knowledge of man. Lord, I pray this morning that your spirit would speak and guide me and transform us so that we may look more like you, not seeking our own glory with our own message, but to glorify you because you are worthy of all of our glory, all of our honor, and all of our praise. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so briefly I'm going to discuss what's going on here. We're going to spend, like I said, most of our time on the teachings of Christ. Um, and also, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in this passage. There's a reason why I'm covering 22 verses. is because everything that Jesus talks about here, he explains in greater detail later on. In chapter 8, in chapter 12, in chapter 14, in chapter 16. So you get extra credit points if you read ahead. And you should read ahead. Because Jesus goes into greater detail because these sayings, as he's saying them, are veiled to the listener. But he makes them known to his disciples later on. And then to us, who have faith in Christ, the, the, the Spirit makes this alive to us. And so I encourage you to read through John over the next few chapters and uh, stay with us over the ne- next few weeks. And if you ever miss a sermon, they're, they're on the website. But there's a reason why we work through the entire book intentionally. Because John is doing something intentionally here. He is unfolding who Christ is and what he came to do and what it means to know him. And each each chapter adds another layer to that. And so hopefully you, you stay with us and um, you stay with me today. So let me just bring us up to speed on where we are. Last week we introduced the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles, if you have an, an older translation. Uh, they're, they're synonymous words. So this was one of the three feasts where every male Jew was required to go to Jerusalem. And everyone would come from all over the known world and uh, they would put up their booths around Jerusalem and they would come to the temple every day and see the ceremonies, and there would be celebration. And so Jesus' brothers, they try to guilt trip him into going and tell him what he should do, as good brothers will do. And as a good brother did, he listened to his father, and he didn't listen to his brothers, and he waited. So last week we looked at the beginning of the feast, but now we find ourselves in the middle of the feast. 
Next week, we're going to look at the last day of the feast. So here we are in the middle of the feast of the booths, and uh, this would probably have been in the temple because any teaching that was done would have been done probably in, in the Gentile courts, and there was a sign to recognize everyone would be bustling about, but the uh, teachers would sit down when they taught. So Jesus would have probably sat down, and then a crowd would have begun to gather. Um, and as we saw last week, they were looking for him. They were trying to figure out, where is this Jesus guy? Because last time we had a feast, chapter 5, he healed a guy. And he, this guy had been lame his whole life. He got up and walked, and there was a whole big deal between him and the Pharisees. And where is he? Is he going to come and teach again? And maybe they just wanted to see if the Pharisees were really going to make good on this threat to kill him. And so that's where we find ourselves, all this tension. And Jesus shows up in the middle of the feast. We pick up here in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus teaches and they marvel. We don't know exactly what he taught. I I wish we did. Uh, But we know whatever he said just astounded them. Because Jesus didn't belong to the rabbi club. He hadn't studied in, in one of the synagogue schools. He didn't sit under a prominent rabbi. And in those days, if you were not a rabbi or the student of a prominent rabbi, you would not dare to speak on behalf of God or to try to explain God's word. So this is very offensive to them that this nobody is now teaching and he doesn't have any pedigree behind him. And uh, this isn't much different than, than our culture. You know, those who have higher learning, those who put so much emphasis on academia can't imagine that someone could actually teach or speak intelligibly without all the degrees and the classroom time that I have. But we see there is a pattern of God teaching his people. We saw the disciples. They didn't go to any school and Christ used them to start the entire church. They spent three years with Jesus. They walked with him. They learned from him. He discipled them as they walked. Paul went to these same Pharisee schools, but Paul had to unlearn everything that he had learned. Jesus spent three years with Paul in the wilderness deprogramming all the legalism that was in him from the Pharisees. John Owen, who we read from earlier, he didn't have all the degrees that his predecessors have. He's probably one of the most influential Puritans. He didn't have his, his doctorate. He didn't have extra schooling, but he spent a lot of time with the Lord. And you can hear that in his heart. One of the greatest preachers of all time never went to any formal school at all. Charles Spurgeon, taught by the Lord and influenced tens of of thousands and still to this day, was a man whose heart was broken over his own sin and the things of God. A few weeks ago, Deshaun said some really kind words about me, and I'm going to repay the favor this morning. People ask me very often, well, you know, where did you go to school? Is there another pastor there? Where did he go to school? So when I talk to people about Deshaun, he amazed me from day one. That a young Christian was reading at a seminary level and thinking at a seminary level, had knowledge of God that most people I was in seminary classes with did not have. And we wrestled back and forth with, should he go to school or not? Can he be in ministry without a degree behind his name? This is not for everyone. I don't want to belittle education because for most people, that discipline and correction and instruction is really helpful. But for some, the Lord gives, gives gifts and, and gives discernment. And that should be encouraged and stoked in the local church. And so 
That is why within a very short amount of time, all of you who were here recognized those gifts within Deshaun. He had humbled himself before the Lord and he had sought the teaching of the Lord. And he didn't know he was going to be used in the same breath with John Owen and Charles Spurgeon and Paul and the disciples. Um, I know I know Deshaun, his head will not get big. If not, we'll, we'll bring him down. Um, but I am so thankful for him in the work that the Lord has done in him. And those who I see who have a desire, never step foot in a classroom, but can't get enough of the word of God. And Jesus is putting that stereotype to shame that you have to be from this particular school and this particular way of thinking to be able to teach. And the grand irony here is that the source of all wisdom and knowledge is standing in front of them, and they call him a man with no learning. How blind are you to the things of God? You can have all the learning in the world, but without divine illumination, without the knowledge of God, it is pointless. So Jesus answers them. And he says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. This is, this is important, because a lot of people will try to use this to downplay Jesus' divinity. Well, he couldn't have known everything. Well, if it's not his, he's separating himself from God. No, Jesus is emphasizing his humanity here as an example for us. As a man, my teaching is not mine. I've been sent from God. My teaching is from God. And because of his authority, he appeals to the higher authority. The other thing we don't get here about synagogue and temple teaching is they would recognize a source for everything. Well, it is said that. So-and-so says this. It has been said that. And there was this pattern of every, every time something was spoken, they had to appeal to a higher authority. So Jesus appeals to the highest authority. Don't you have to believe me. I appeal to the one who sent me. And this is so important to us. Jesus says, my teaching is not mine. It's the same word for, for doctrine. For us as believers, our teaching should not be our own. Our doctrine should not be our own. We need to be careful not to create a religion in our own, of our own opinion and of our own making. Our doctrine should be from the one who sent us. Our doctrine should be to the highest authority. Our teaching should be in the name of the Lord and not in the name of what, what I am excited about today. And yes, the Lord will make us excited about things, but we need to be careful. And Jesus is a great example here in his humanity. So Jesus goes on. He said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Because remember, they just questioned his ability. And I love what Leon Morris in his commentary says about this. He says, they question his competence as a teacher. He raises the question of their competence as hearers. Okay, you, you want to put my teaching into question? I'm going to put your hearing into question. If you are really of God, you would know that my word is true. Anyone's will is to do God's will. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. You can't do God's will unless the desire is there. We talked about this earlier. The knowledge of God stokes in us a desire to do the will of God. And the will has to be transformed. Our, what we desire has to be transformed. It can't be just knowledge. It can't be knowledge for knowledge's sake. It must have a heart transformation. But by doing the will of God, he gives you discernment to know the teachings of Christ and to know Christ intimately. So what does that mean for our lives? Many of you ask me all the time, 
I want to know what you know about the Bible. Help me to understand this. Help me to study this way. Yes, study. Spend time in Scripture. Absolutely. But as you do the will of God, as you are faithful with what God has given you, He will give you wisdom. He will help you to grow in Him. But some people wait until they have all the learning before they can do anything. Well, if I don't have the degree, I've never been to seminary, uh, I haven't been a Christian that long, so I'm not going to do God's will until I've got all the answers. I'm going to lock myself in a room until I have all the answers doesn't work for very many people. But by being faithful, day by day, doing the will of God, God will make it clear to them. He will give them discernment. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's also an unspoken ethic here, too. Because if you love the Lord, you will be doing His will. It has to stem from the love of the Lord. We spent so much time on this in Romans. If you love the Lord, you'll be doing His will, and by doing His will, you will know His teaching. This sums up the well-rounded Christian. You've heard us talk about what it means to be uh, wholly transformed, where our minds, our affections, and our actions are lined up with the will of God. It comes from those who love Him, those who do His will. And they will grow in their knowledge of Him, and these things will continue to feed each other. And that's how we grow in Christian maturity. And for some of us, the knowledge is easier. Or for some of us, the affections are easier. And some of us, the actions are easier. That's why we're all needed within the body. Because those who think can instruct those who, who feel, and those who feel can hold people like me who, who think accountable for our callousness sometimes. And those who do serve the body out of love of the Lord, and we complement and encourage one another in the body. So Jesus draws the, the connection with those who know the Lord, love the Lord, do His will. They will know His teaching. They will recognize what is from Christ. There is no knowledge of God without love of God. And with love of God, you can't not do his will. If you truly love him, if you truly know him, you will have to do his will because you've been transformed by the Spirit and the Spirit is within you and will guide you. So he talks about the nature of his teaching, how it's from God, how it is in complete agreement with God. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. How do you spot a false teacher? One who seeks their own glory. One who cares more about about you loving them or giving them accolades than about Christ. Or, 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 you know, Christ came, and if anyone should seek their own glory, it should be him. But he didn't. He came as a servant. He came as a man to show us how to walk as mankind. This is another warning because on the other side of those who are taught by God and who, who love God and love to grow in His Word are the others on the other side who are self-taught. And they think because they have uh, the loftiest ideas in the room or they're the smartest person around that no one needs to teach them. So there's also a warning on the other side. For those who say, I don't need learning. I don't need the things of God. Uh, I don't need Scripture because I am my own enlightenment. There are many of those out there, and there are many of people being led astray. The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. Someone, lo- someone who loves to hear themselves talk and share their own, own opinions is seeking their own glory, and be wary of them. So now Jesus transitions from his authority and his teaching into the teaching that they claim, the knowledge that they hold so dearly. Verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you, keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? 
It's just like Jesus took a complete left turn here, right? Like, where did this come from? But the Jews rested so heavily on their knowledge of the law. Their knowledge of the law was equated to their identity and their salvation. And so Jesus draws on that. Jesus summed up the law, as we know, in love of God and love of man. But you can't know the law if it hasn't transformed you. Like Jonathan said earlier, my childhood was very similar. I had a lot of Bible facts. I knew a lot of things about the Bible, but I did not know the God who gave that, those, those scriptures to his people. This is where the Jews are. They know about this God. They know facts about him. They have knowledge, but it has not transformed them. Because Jesus tells them that none of you keep the law. None of you. That should remind us of Romans. Romans 3, we spent, we spent so much time on our own depravity. None of you seeks after God. None of you keeps the law. None of you. Romans 2, Paul reminds us that you Jews who have the law and you think you're righteous, even by judging someone else against the law, the very law that you're breaking, you, you're condemning yourself. Paul is just expounding on Jesus' teaching here, and you have to set the groundwork. Because before you realize that you are a lawbreaker, you cannot realize that you need a Savior knowing God, knowing ourselves. So Jesus is, is attacking their identity, which is in their knowledge of the law. They love their own glory. They hate the one sent from God, and they seek to kill him. We know this because John's told us several times already they're seeking to kill him. Then the crowd answers, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? It's like, man, you'd think there'd be a step before you have a demon. Like maybe they, 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 they'd work up to that. Now you have a demon. I'm just waiting for the day where I'm teaching. You have a demon. I might have some fun with that. But, um, so, but here's, the, here's where the wording is very appropriate. Because remember in this, this feast, the Jews are coming from all over. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who were seeking to kill him. So the crowds from all the nations, the crowds who came to Jerusalem, they didn't know about this plot. They thought Jesus was, was crazy. So what's the wording here? The crowd answered, you have a demon. These are people from other countries uh, who are not from Jerusalem, who don't know the Jerusalem gossip mill, and they don't know what the Pharisees are planning to do. Verse 21, Jesus answers them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Remember I mentioned earlier, chapter 5, Jesus raised this man who had been paralyzed his entire life on the Sabbath. I did one work, and you marvel at it. This was an unnamed feast, probably about five months ago. But all these same Jews would have been there, and they would have witnessed this, and they were asking, where's that guy who made the uh, crippled guy walk? The guy who all the Pharisees hate. I did one work, and you all marvel at it. This is important here, because Jesus is going to start to erode their legalistic foundation from underneath them. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. They appealed to Moses. Moses was their authority. Circumcision was generations before Moses. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So Jesus does something great here. He says, okay, you want to talk about your knowledge of, of, of the law. You want to come at me. You marvel at my teaching. You marvel that I healed someone on the Sabbath. But if you always circumcise someone on the eighth day and you circumcise a child on the eighth day, aren't you breaking the Sabbath? This Sabbath that you're holding in such high regard that you're going to condemn me and you're going to condemn this poor man for picking up his mat and walking, but yet you will do this to a, a, a child to not break the law of Moses? Do you, don't you see the hypocrisy here? Don't you see the contradiction in your teaching? And he goes on in verse 23. If the Sabbath 
If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made uh, a man's whole body well? Think about the contrast here. They want to keep the law of Moses and to cleanse or purify one little part of this poor little boy. And Jesus heals an entire man, his whole body. You're going to heal one little part. I'm going to heal this whole man, his whole body. And not just his physical body, but spiritually as well, because Jesus commands him, go and sin no more. I'm going to heal him, body and spirit. And you think this, with a little, is, is, (laughs) sorry, it just came to me, I'm sorry. But you think that is of a higher order than making this man, this this in, in in the Greek, is, is beautiful. We can't get this in English, but it's literally making, uh, making the whole man whole. I'm making the whole man whole, and you're trying to condemn me in favor of one thing. So Jesus is not lowering his standard for the law, but he's telling them, look at the hypocrisy here. Remember that they missed the heart of the Sabbath because they, they made the Sabbath a chore. The Sabbath was to be holy unto God, to do the things of God, the things that please God. That Sabbath was to be a joy. And they made it such a burden because it was a list of don'ts. And we as the church, let's not do that. Let's not make the gospel. Let's not make worship a list of don'ts. Let it be joyful. Let it be glorious because our God is glorious. Let it be holy because our God is holy. And so then he says to them, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Man, we've seen this so much in Romans. This Greek word, krino, um, it means to determine to make up one's mind. Don't make up your mind according to appearances. I love um, 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees, because man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord sees the heart. And we, we talked about this on, on Wednesday night, the difference between the external and the internal. Don't be externally religious. Don't be defined by all these external appearances. Be transformed from the inside. Judge with right judgment. So now the people respond. There's confusion and there's misunderstanding here. So some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man who they seek to kill? But wait a second, didn't the crowds just not know about what was going on? Read carefully. Some of the people of Jerusalem Therefore said, is not this the man that they seek to kill? John knew his audience well. He knew the people from around didn't know, but the people of Jerusalem knew the Pharisees' plot. He knew that those, the the, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they hated Christ and they sought to kill him. And they recognized the inconsistency. Because it says, and here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. You guys are real brave behind closed doors. You guys have all these these plots in secret, but here he is. Arrest him. If he's doing something worthy of killing him, here he is. They They were cowards, resting in their own knowledge, fearing the knowledge of God. Then they ask a profound question. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Because that's the logical implication. But that couldn't be the case, no. Because they go right into, but we know, again, their knowledge, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ, the Messiah, Mashiach, appears, no one will know where he comes from. Anyone know where that's found in the Bible? No one will know where the Messiah comes from? 
good because it's not. Uh, that was taught by the Pharisees. The Pharisees had this, this saying that no one will know where the Messiah comes. The Messiah will come kind of like a scorpion. You never see a scorpion coming, but they're, 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 they're kind of there. There's no, uh, there. there's no rhyme or reason. They just appear out of nowhere. And so the Pharisees taught this, and the people believed this, but we see this nowhere in Scripture. On the other hand, we see Micah 5.2 that tells us that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. Oh, Bethlehem. The root of Jesse is going to come. And so they took the teaching, the knowledge of man to suppress the teaching of God. They trusted in the Pharisees who added to the word of God, not believing God who's standing right in front of them. And this disagreement arises within the people. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. This word in the Greek is literally cried out. Jesus cried out. He's hearing this and he's, Jesus lost his temper. It's okay, he can do that because he has a righteous anger. So many times we, we read scripture and it's like uh, Jesus is this emotionless robot who just says, you know me and you know where I come from. Jesus says, you know me? You know where I come from? Yes, I believe Jesus was sarcastic. You know me, you know where I come from? But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. Imagine Jesus crying out. They're, they're murmuring to one another, is he the Christ? Could he be doing this? You don't know him who sent me. You think you know where I come from. Maybe he's not as angry as I am, but he gets to the heart of the matter. You think you know me, but you have no idea. You don't really know the Father, so you can't know me. My origin is not of this world. It is from God, and if you do not know God, you cannot know me. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus is going to do this twice. He contrasts, you don't know the Father, but I know the Father. He sets him apart from the crowds. You make these determinations. You are making wrong judgments. You are judging on appearances. You are judging on the external because you have no spiritual knowledge. You have no knowledge of God. But I know because I come from him. This is a consistent theme in John, how Jesus equates himself with the Father. His teaching is one with the Father. His authority is one with the Father. His origin is one of, with the Father. and sets him apart from these, from these people. And this beautiful, unfolding Trinitarian relationship is marked by perfect knowledge of God. Perfect authority in God's name. Perfect knowledge of Christ equals perfect knowledge of the Father. So for us to know the Father, to know God at all, you have to know Christ. Anyone who says any different, anyone who says you can get to God by any other way, there is none. You can't know him unless you know me. And he again just befuddles them. So they're seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. So brave, right? One man. Everyone's conspiring against him. They want to arrest him, but they don't know what they can do because we saw this last week. They're more concerned about what people are going to think. They're, they're afraid of the response of everyone else. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We'll get there eventually, but John 13.1 tells us when his hour has come, when the last week of his life begins. Yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, we don't know if this is belief in, in, in saving faith. 
I think if it was, John would be pretty particular here, but they got the right idea. I mean, could someone be more amazing than Jesus? Could someone teach better than him? Could someone heal more than him? Like, could the, the, the Christ do anything better than this? It's a good question to ask. But it doesn't go very much further because the Pharisees respond as they normally do. All right, now he's upsetting the apple cart. We gotta, we, we gotta get our house back in order. The, the, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, is basically saying everyone within the Sanhedrin, every important Jew with authority, came together and sent officers to arrest him. And uh, this is another great example of Jesus just completely disregards what, what, what's happening. You know, the, the Pharisees are reacting to the people. You know, the, the Pharisees are always reacting. Well, if they're saying this about Jesus, we've got to arrest him. We've got to shut him up before he leads more people astray. Jesus could care less. He is not influenced by what's going on around him. Listen to what he says. Jesus then says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. What does it have to do with him arresting? I love that Jesus has a message and he is undeterred. I don't care what you do. I have something to tell you, something that is of more importance than whatever you're scrambling around about. I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going with him who sent me. He's going to get into this later, so I won't spend a whole lot of time here. Um, but I want to zero in on verse 34 for a moment. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Again, the contrast between him and them. You will seek me, you will not find me. Because where I am, you cannot come. He separates themselves or himself from them. They are seeking to kill him, so they won't find him. So you can try to lay a hand on me, but my time is not yet. My hour is not yet. You cannot find me. Uh, but he also will go into later that you know, many will seek him, sort of, half-heartedly, uh, but they won't be able to find him. You can't seek him if you are divided. And I want to look at a couple passages that help us understand that. Up on the screen will be uh, Amos chapter 8. I want to go through these pretty quickly. And um, I know it's going to take most of you guys a long time to find Amos, if, if you've ever found it. Um, so Amos 8, 11 and 12 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. The Lord will send a famine to where there will be a starvation of the word of God. They will not hear the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Amos prophesied about this. God sent a famine, and there will be a time when they will seek, where is God? You cannot find him because you rejected him when he walked among you. But who will find him? Proverbs 8.17 I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Not just those who seek half-heartedly. You can't be a divided person. You can't have affections toward the world, affections toward other things, and seek Christ. You must seek him diligently. You must seek him with all of your heart. How will you do that? Jeremiah 29. I joked with Julian earlier. Yes, you can read from Jeremiah 29 and not touch verse 11. Because everyone takes it out of context. Because the plans that I have for you are only if... You call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when, in your Bibles, you should put three circles around when, 
when you seek me with all of your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Why can't they, why can't they, they, they find him because they're seeking him half-heartedly? Who are the ones who find him? The ones who seek him diligently and seek him with all of their heart. And only an undivided heart can really seek God and know him. So let's have a practical question for you. What is dividing your heart? What is prohibiting you from seeking the Lord with all of your heart? What is it that so has the affections of your heart that you can't find him because you're so immersed in yourself? And every one of us has things in this world that pull us away from the Lord. And every time we think that we, we want to seek after him, there's another distraction and another distraction and another mishap that get in the way. Don't be divided in your heart. Seek him diligently. Seek him with all your heart. Forsake all for him. And there are promises to those who do that. So he says here, or excuse me, uh, the Jews respond to one another. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So the, the dispersion is, um, we know when Israel was not faithful, they were taken by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they were spread all over. Some came home, some stayed out there. So there are Jews everywhere. A lot of the Jews came back uh, for this, this festival, and they were living among the Greeks. And so they're saying, well, we would never touch the Greeks. So Jesus is probably going to go over there with, with, with them where no one will, will find them and go to those unclean Gentiles. Well, the irony there is he would one day with the disciples. Uh, but no. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will find me? Where I am, you cannot come. What does he mean? I think Proverbs 1 tells us what he means. It'll be up there too. Proverbs 1, 22 to 23. Listen to these words and listen to them carefully. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen. I have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me. But I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge. And they did not choose the fear of the Lord. Would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. What does he mean by that? That's what he means by that. Just one more thing to ponder this morning as we close. Uh, Jesus was sent by the Father to retrieve the lost sheep, to redeem them. Without going to the cross, without atoning for our sins, without dying on the cross, without rising again and seating, being seated at the right hand of the Father and sending the Spirit. 
Unless we had his righteousness, we would not have the spirit. We would not have his knowledge. All that must happen for us to know God. Without Christ dying, resurrecting, and sitting on the right hand of the Father, sending the Spirit, there is no knowledge of God. Thank God that he he didn't just die to just save us from our sins, which would be amazing. He sent Christ to send the Spirit so that we would know him. We would be his saints and he would reveal his heart to us. He would open up his counsels and we wouldn't be like those blind Jews who miss what is standing right in front of them. We could never know him without the finished work of Christ. And it is only by trusting in who he is and what he has done that we can even know God. When we do that, our eyes are opened. We don't seek what man seeks. We seek what God seeks. And through growing in knowledge of Christ, we grow in knowledge of God, and we grow in Him, and we grow in maturity. This is the whole reason John wrote this book, that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, that you might believe in Him, that you might have eternal life. Rest in who Christ is. Rest on our knowledge of Him. Come to knowledge of Him. Seek Him with all your heart and forsake everything that takes your heart away from Him. And next week we get into the good news, the other side of this. This is the condemnation. He breaks them down. But next week we're going to get into them, get into him as living water and then the light of the world after that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you that our knowledge of you is not based on us. Thank you that we have, that even though we love the things of man, you have transformed us to love the things of God. And I pray you continue to transform us. Pray for those of us who know you, that you continue to shape us into your image. You give us a desire to know you more, to grow in our knowledge of you, to shun the things of the world. For those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would teach them, draw them to you, Give them a knowledge of you. Bring them to saving faith. We have so many people in our lives who we pray for. Lord, honor our our, our prayers. Work in those we love. Transform them. Work your, your spirit within us. Use us as your instruments. Use us for your will. Let us be known as people who love to do your will. Let us be faithful. Let us be true because you are faithful and true. Let us reflect the love that you have shown us by loving you. Mighty name of Jesus, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen.